Broadcasting live from Atlanta, Georgia, it's time for Top Docs Radio. Brought to you by Women's Telehealth, whose mission is to bring scarce, high-risk maternal fetal medicine services to patients and referring obstetricians in their own community, urban or rural. Visit womenstelehealth.com for more information. Now, here are your hosts, Tanya Mack and C.W. Hall. Hey, Tanya, what's going on? I'm having a great day. How about you, CW? Pleasure to have you back in the studio. We've been doing a series with Women's Telehealth, doing uh, some conversations with a host of really amazing healthcare professionals, and sounds like we have another great one today. We do. I'm thrilled about our topic today because it kind of dovetails into what I do. We're going to be talking about neonatal abstinence syndrome. And let me tell you a little bit about what that is. The United States has seen a significant rise in opioid use in the past 10 years, and unfortunately, it includes pregnant women. So although this was described in the 70s, according to a recent study in 2012, over 21,000 infants are born in the U.S. with neonatal abstinence syndrome, Mm. more than five times the number than the prior 12 years. So once these babies are born to a mother that's addicted, then, of course, they suffer from withdrawal. So it is a growing, growing problem in urban and rural areas. And um, we've scrounged the country. We have a national (sighs) expert with us today. Let me introduce you to Dr. Meg Prado from Envision Health. So Dr. Prado is a board-certified physician in general pediatrics and neonatal and perinatal medicine. She's been a neonatologist since 2000. She was a medical director for a level three nursery in Colorado for 10 years. And currently, and where I met her was, she was vice, she is vice president of women and children's services for Envision Healthcare, which is based in Florida. She's dialing in today for us from Colorado. So we're happy to have you, Dr. Prado. Thank you. Good morning. It's great to be here. Good morning. So we'll jump right into it. So um, this is not a topic we've had before, CW, so I think we're going to learn a lot today. And um, I know in lots of communities we're dealing with it, and certainly Dr. Prado sees it very frequently. But why don't you just start, Dr. Prado, telling us a little bit about the definition of neonatal abstinence syndrome and how big of a problem it is? Yeah, um, you know, again, thank you all for having me on the show this morning and giving me the opportunity to give more exposure to a problem that really, um, you know, Tanya, you you gave a great introduction, and I appreciate that, a problem that has really increased dramatically over the last 10 to 15 years is this, um, this, this entity that we call neonatal abstinence syndrome. Probably a better name would be, be to call it neonatal withdrawal or neonatal opioid uh, withdrawal because babies can't consciously abstain uh, like adults can, um, but they certainly can withdraw from medications that they're exposed to um, while mom is pregnant. Um, And we as neonatologists and certainly pediatricians in the communities have seen uh, really uh, a dramatic uptick in the number of babies who, who have this syndrome. And what it's doing is it's, it's, it's increasing um, length of stays for newborn babies You know, historically, we expected long lengths of stays, mostly in our little premature babies who require hospitalization uh, for for prolonged periods. But now we're seeing full-term babies who you wouldn't ordinarily Mm -hmm. expect to stay in the hospital or needing to stay. And so the the, um, impact on the cost of medical care as well as um, 
as some of the social and um, parental bonding issues that we can talk about, you know, as we get into this interview, um, really, really um, are making a significant um, problem for for all of us. Mm-hmm. So, uh, so you know, I hope that that's a, a pretty good introduction yeah. to what we're going to talk about. Yeah. So it, apparently, we're seeing an increase both from uh, pain management during pregnancy management, illicit drug mm-hmm. use, and also. Um, women that are pregnant that are actually in active addiction treatment, but yes. still re- receiving yes. methadone or something. So I'm just yes. kind of speak a no. little bit to what you think is happening as to the cause. And we, we all know this. We mm-hmm. see this in the news. I don't think this is a secret that that most of the narcotics that are used in the world are actually used in the United States. Um, and that does include, like you said, Tanya, uh, prescription medications, illicit use of opiates um, like heroin, uh, we all know from seeing in the news um, that there's been a dramatic increase in the use of illicit opiates or heroin in communities. Uh, we see we see young kids getting addicted. We see increase in in um, narcotic associated deaths, and we also are seeing because of all of this prescription use as well as illicit use, we're seeing an increase in the number of of uh, abstinence programs or or programs that are devised to help. Uh, people successfully um, get off of these of these medications and drugs. I know as recently as last so it's week, from, yeah, it's coming from many different directions. Right, yeah. Last week we saw uh, a patient in our practice. We do maternal fetal medicine, where the pregnant yeah. mom had had back surgery two years ago mm-hmm. and was never successfully weaned off pain medicine, and now she's pregnant with baby yeah. number two. So. We're dealing with that in utero. Is is it most commonly opioids, or do you see like multiple substances, or what are you seeing? Well, you know, unfortunately, we see babies who are exposed to to a number of different substances, um, from really from smoking cigarettes to. And here in Colorado, we know that with the legalization of recreational marijuana, we're seeing we've seen a huge mm. increase in. The number of pregnant women who um, who use marijuana, not knowing that it potentially is harmful to their fetus. Mm-hmm. Um, so there's a wide range of substances that that neonates are exposed to. You know, it's hard to know exactly what the incidence is because self-reporting, um, although it's <laughs> something that seems intuitive and that we would want all women to tell us readily what they're using or not using, um, it, it may not be as easy as, as you or I think it is because mm-hmm. there is a, there is a, there is a risk of punitive. Right. Absolutely. Um, they just won't show up for being taken. Yeah. They won't come for antenatal care. So it's kind of a double-edged sword too. sometimes. And so we yeah. don't, yeah, we wouldn't want to discourage in any event, any woman from seeking proper prenatal care, um, even if even if she's using you know even if she's using illicit drugs, mm-hmm. we we as medical providers always have to remember that the patient needs to be first, and that the patient is actually two patients or mm-hmm. can be more patients if she's carrying multiples, and so we have to be empathetic and understanding and still encourage patients to come to us, even if even if there's a potential problem or a potential for. Um, for them to be reported. Mm-hmm. So that brings up a good next question. How do you know yeah. and how do you verify that a, a, a newborn baby has had an exposure? Is there good communication or are you surprised or do you do automatic testing or what's, mm-hmm. the, what's the pathways to you? 
That's a great question, Tanya. So, you know, for women who are in prescription programs or who are in, um, you know, methadone programs for um, controlled withdrawal um, of opiates, those women pretty much were going to know um, what's going on. And so, you know, it's easy to screen those babies if needed. And sometimes those babies don't even need to be screened with biologic, um, biological screening techniques that are used to, to test for, for exposures. Um, but sometimes, you know, you don't know that a woman is, is, is taking um, either prescription medications, illicit medications. So we have risk factors and we have certain things that, that may warn us as, as healthcare providers or put us on alert. That, um, that a certain um, woman might be at risk for using um, illicit medications or other substances. So, for instance, if a woman comes in and she hasn't had any prenatal care, um, or certainly if a woman comes into the labor floor and seems to be um, altered, then, then those are certain, you know, we have certain red flags that then would cause us to screen first the mother if she gives us consent, and then um, the baby. So we have certain, you know, most of us um, who work in NICUs and work in hospitals on, del- on labor and delivery floors have policies and procedures in place that, that, um, that cause us to screen either the mothers with consent or the babies if, if there are certain tip-offs. Are there any state-to-state regulatory factors here, like that you're required screening or like if you, if, is, it, le- is it legally of. required or is it most, just a medical... Most screening is, is is most screening of babies at least, um, and and we have different ways of screening newborns. We can test their urine, we can test their um, their meconium, which is the first stools that the first bowel mm-hmm. movements actually that babies pass. Uh, we can also send umbilical cord for sampling. Um, I'm not aware that there are any state um, recommendations. Most of us as as healthcare providers, you know, devise our own policies and procedures for who needs to be screened. Um, mothers who come in on no in, on taking known prescription medications, therefore we 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 automatically watch those babies very carefully. Um, you know, we don't routinely necessarily have to screen those babies because we already know what they're at risk for mm-hmm. based on the mom's history. And then another question I have, Doctor Prado, is what is there mm-hmm. a percent of babies that uh, if you know that there is an exposure that actually develop? Neonatal withdrawal? Yeah. Do they all with do they all have some degree of that or not? So they don't all necessarily withdraw. And and Tanya, you can imagine just, you know, that 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 in, in within within our own biologies and we're all different and, and really it depends on the the length of exposure. So the cumulative dose that the mother takes of opiates um, will determine if the baby's going to have withdrawal. There's also um, it's also related to the baby's um, maturational state or gestational age at birth. We know that premature babies, for some reason, don't manifest withdrawal symptoms, and mm-hmm. we think it's because the the um, the opioid receptors in their brains are not fully formed, and so they don't have a full blown withdrawal syndrome. Mm-hmm. But we mostly see that withdrawal syndrome in full term babies. It is a high percentage, though. You know, if the mother's been taking um, either prescription medications or illicit narcotics, or 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 enrolled in a in a program for the majority of her pregnancy, and the baby is born close to term, it's a that baby is at very high risk for having um, withdrawal. Somewhere between fifty to to ninety percent of those babies will likely have some degree of withdrawal um, syndrome. Yeah, that's really high. That's really high. Yeah. 
Okay. Well, what about... And then the other medications, the other, the other illicit medications like um, cocaine and marijuana, we consider to be, you know, marijuana, it, it's tricky. It's, it's, it may be legal for recreational use, but it's not considered legal to use that medication when you're, when you're pregnant because the baby, remember, is another another person who's not, mm-hmm. who's not asking to be exposed. And we worry about how all these medications can alter brain development. When we have an exposure of an illicit drug, those are reportable offenses. Mm-hmm. And those instances are reported to the, to the state level, to the Department of Children's and Families. Is that state by state or like a national standard, the reportability? That's probably more of a national standard, Tanya. Okay. okay. You know, many of these babies who are exposed to either prescription or, or illicit medications, you know, they, they do have complex social situations, many of them. And so a lot of times the social, social worker does get involved and, and a lot of times the, 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 the state department um, also gets involved. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I can imagine that. Clinically, what do you see? The symptoms vary, but it's a pretty well-described symptomatology. The babies um, who are having active withdrawal oftentimes have um, a fever. Um, they have irritability. Um, they have increased tone, so they tend to be a little bit stiff. They can have high-pitched crying. They can have a lot of GI symptoms. So they they may not suck. They may suck very um, suck vigorously, but then when you want them to feed, they don't feed very well. They vomit. They have diarrhea, um, and so they don't gain weight. There's a lot of caloric expenditure in in all of this withdrawal sim- symptomatology. So then the babies, like I said, they don't they oftentimes don't gain weight well. So a lot of our our um, therapy is is um, is aimed at feeding. Um, and you know, we'll, I know we'll talk about therapy. Mm-hmm. Um, first, we try to treat the babies non pharmacologically. So. Um, I don't know if we'll get into treatment now. But, we can, yeah, let's um, go ahead and get into treatment now. So you work a okay. lot on the feeding, and then uh-huh. you start with non-drug intervention. So yeah, so the first, you know, the first line therapy is to try to treat a baby uh, by environmental manipulation. So that usually includes um, the least stimulation as is possible. So keep the baby in a relatively, um, you know, not, not dark, but not overly well lit room. Um, try not to overstimulate the child or the baby. Um, swaddling, holding is, is very important. So, so you can imagine that, that it's important to, in a lot of instances, try not to separate these babies from their mothers because the mothers are going to be the ones who are capable or able to do the non-pharmacologic therapy much better than if the baby were in a NICU, in a busy NICU setting or a busy nursery setting where you have lots of other babies crying and lots of nurses and lots of people coming in and out and lights. Um, but unfortunately, it's not always um, simple, not always easy for us to keep the babies with their mothers. Um, so yeah, so the first, so the first line is to try to treat the baby non-pharmacologically with those types of treatments. And then when you do have to move to withdrawal therapy using drugs, what, what is uh-huh. kind of the course of action that you have? Because- so for babies who, who have been exposed to opiates like prescription pain medications and, 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 and for babies who have been exposed to heroin um, or methadone, uh, the first line of therapy is either an oral morphine solution or an oral um, methadone um, solution. Um, you know, and, and really p- depends on where, where you are, what part of the country and, and, 
and your pharmacy, which, which drug you use, either morphine or methadone. Um, methadone has, has ethanol in it. So some of us um, choose not to use methadone and the oral morphine does not have any ethanol used in its preparation. Uh, it's also shorter acting, the morphine. So it's a little bit easier to titrate because it's got a shorter half-life. But certainly there are many people around the country who use methadone for these babies. Um, about how long would like a typical course of treatment if you're using drug withdrawal last? Yeah, so it varies, but on average, I would say about three weeks for most babies, but it, it can vary um, from, you know, obviously one week or, or less to a baby who might even need, I've, I've seen babies stay in the hospital for months because of the difficulties of what, what, they're withdrawing from. And, you know, oftentimes these mothers, unfortunately, are not just on one medication, but they're on several medications. Mm-hmm. So if you have polysubstance abuse or use, then the baby's not only battling withdrawing from maybe opiates, they may mm-hmm. also be battling withdrawing from other medications like benzodiazepines mm-hmm. and and other drugs such as you may see in the in the news, um, SSRIs or selective serotonin reuptake inhibitors is what SSRI stands for, and the, and those are often used um, for depression. So, so you can imagine these these poor women have a lot of, of a lot of things that they're going through. They're, they may have chronic pain, and along with that may go depression and other other um, mental health um, challenges, which require other medications. Mm-hmm. One question I had was, once a baby's born to mm-hmm. this kind of scenario, do you see the symptoms like immediately after birth or within a few days after birth? Or uh, Great c- question. Could we miss so, one? Like you think yeah. you don't have like uh, an immediate yeah. thing. You didn't know that the mother was a user. And then all of a sudden we send a baby home that mm-hmm. is addicted. Great question, Tanya. So, so again, the the symptoms um, it certainly helps us when we know, mm-hmm. so that we can keep a close eye on that baby, either in the nur- in the normal nursery while the baby's with mom, or sometimes those babies have to be admitted to the NICU for whatever other health reasons they have. But very variable. Those babies can have withdrawal sim- symptoms from as soon as twelve to twenty four hours after birth until sometimes it can take a week, depending on mm-hmm. what medication mom was taking and depending on the half life of that medication, then the symptoms in the baby may be may be prolonged. So you're right. You could discharge a baby in two days and the baby may not have symptoms for five to seven days. So a lot of us hold on to these babies when we know they're at risk for withdrawal. A lot of us will hold on to these babies for a minimum of at least five days to make sure that we're not missing a neonatal withdrawal. And do the carriers, the insurance carriers go for that? Because I'm thinking of like a a preterm baby that looks good, you know, you're kind of waiting to see what's going to happen. Or I, I, I mean, I understand that a lot of what we're talking about is just really varies with what you're given, what you're looking at. But you know, I I would ass- I I have to assume that they're allowing us to to watch these babies. Oftentimes, they're not going to be required to be um, on a very high level of care initially, mm-hmm. um, and hopefully never. Mm-hmm. Um, but you know, I'm not hearing that that we're not that we're being rejected frequently mm-hmm. from claims. Mm-hmm. So my assumption is that that at least um, you know Medicaid is is paying for us mm-hmm. to to watch these babies because mm-hmm. being vigilant is important. We worry ultimately that these babies can have seizures and that obviously can pose um, a significant threat to the baby's health. Mm-hmm. So discharging these babies home if they're having unrecognized seizures by the caretaker could potentially be 
even more disastrous mm-hmm. for the babies. Mm-hmm. I'm wondering, is there some kind of scoring system or way that you determine mm-hmm. like an acuity level of this withdrawal? Mm-hmm. Yeah, so there are different scoring techniques. A lot of us use um, the Finnegan scoring technique that um, you know ha- has been used and described for, I think since the 1970s is when Dr. Finnegan first described this neonatal withdrawal um, syndrome. But a lot of us use either the Finnegan scoring um, system or the modified Finnegan scoring system. And it's, and it's really a very objective way for the nursing staff to score a baby based on heart rate, temperature of the baby. And then we also look at other symptoms like tone, jitteriness, high-pitched crying. So it's a very objective scoring technique that allows the nursing staff to tell us as the medical care providers, this baby is scoring too high. And, um, and, and, you know, most of us have um, policies in place where if a baby's at risk for withdrawal and, they, and they're scored and they score higher than eight on three consecutive scores, then we start treating them with, with medications. And so are they scored uh, like once a day or once a shift? Or no, they're, they're scored, um, you know, usually with each care time. So every three to four hours. Okay. Um, and, and usually we score them after they eat because you don't want hunger to be part of the mix. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. So the nurse feeds the baby. And then once the baby is fed, then the nurse will score the baby. And it's usually every three to four hours. Okay. And then that continues mm-hmm. on until the baby is that, weaned That off. continues on. Yeah. Right. Because then, then we use that scoring every three to four hours to allow us to wean the babies. And most of us start weaning babies every 48 to 72 hours. Um, by 10% if their scores are consistently under eight. Mm-hmm. Well, that's fascinating. Now, let's kind of go back to one thing you mentioned earlier when we were talking about the treatment of these babies, yeah. and that is the parental presence at the bedside. Yeah. And so yes. I'm sure that the holding, but I, I heard you say it's really complicated because you, I'm interested to hear a little bit more yeah. about breastfeeding or not. Mm-hmm. Is that a possibility mm-hmm. or not if the mom's using Certainly, you know, how do you deal with the, how do you deal with the parents? That's still a very critical time and process. So in an, in an ideal situation where the mother is um, perhaps in in a methadone program or on prescription, you know, in a, in a, in a monitored prescription program, um, you know, in an ideal world where there's no illicit drug use, you would want that baby to stay with that mother and you would want that baby to breastfeed. Um, we know from studies that, that breastfeeding as well as staying with the mother, like rooming in, in a, in a, in a room, um, can, uh, decrease the hospital stay in these babies. Um, so I think we as physicians need, again, this is where empathy and support really play an important role. Mm-hmm. Unfortunately, Tanya, it's very hard to justify, you know, most of our hospitals are not equipped to keep a mother in a hospital room with her baby, right? either while the baby's withdrawing or for the five days that we're kind of observing the baby. So it's very tricky because while we want to keep the babies with their mothers, and we know that that's probably where they're best suited in certain circumstances, you know, most of us have obstacles to that. We don't have, we don't have hospital rooms that can, that we can just keep mothers and babies in, so a lot of times, unfortunately, we end up having to separate physically the mother and the baby, and then the mother's in one room, the baby's in another, and and yes, the mothers try to get down as much as they can. But you can imagine that 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 right off the bat kind of puts an obstacle to the to the mother baby bonding. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, I think in the future we're gonna we're gonna have to think about you know how how do we structure our NICUs, our nurseries, 
Are we going to build? Are we going to build um, build out nurseries that maybe either have all private rooms or have at least a portion private rooms? You know, not only for these withdrawal babies, but for our other, you know, growing premature babies who need to have parents present a lot. Mm-hmm. I'm curious um, as to the dad's involvement. Also, do you have very important, very mm-hmm. important? You know, dads dads are are vital in helping us as moms. Mm-hmm. And so both parents, you know, clearly the dad's not going to be able to to nurse the babies, but certainly hold the babies. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, a lot of us hi- a lot of us get cuddlers in our units, which are volunteers who come to cuddle and hold the babies. And so the dad, you know, dad can function as a cuddler and make sure to be there for mom and and baby also. Very important. Mm-hmm. And uh, you know, we as healthcare providers have to have to be thinking about the family unit and and trying to keep that as intact as possible in these complex social situations. Mm-hmm. I agree with that. So I'm wondering, are there standard? You mentioned before that a lot of times the facility or the providers in a certain area, as far as scope of practice, have standard protocols that they use in the NICU. Mm-hmm. Um, does your organization have? standard protocols or QA measures to ensure Mm -hmm. compliance? Or how do you guys handle that? So, yeah, so we have a very robust um, QI uh, program for our, for our women's and children's division. And, you know, we, we do a lot of quality, quality initiative projects um, using evidence-based best practices. And our late, one of our latest projects is neonatal abstinence syndrome. And so what we've done is, is, is implement or recommend that people, and, and it's very hard. We can't all say, okay, let's all do the same exact thing because we have, you know, we have 50 units across the United States. Um, as long as people implement their own policies and practices to first be able to identify babies at risk, to be able to um, devise their own scoring system, like we talked about for babies at risk, um, and then to implement non-pharmacologic therapies um, it, when appropriate, and then finally to start pharmacologic therapies. So yes, so we we have right now a neonatal abstinence um, quality initiative. And and our goal is really to decrease the the length of pharmacologic treatment in these babies. So we're just starting this program, but um, it is one of our latest projects. And um, and our physicians and allied health participate in our quality calls. We have quality calls monthly. Um, and we also have quality reports that we um, that we provide to our hospitals on a quarterly basis, so the the hospitals can see how we're doing on on our different measures. Mm-hmm. So you're kind of closing the loop and getting everyone involved. Yes. Yeah. What yeah. is kind of your baseline length of stay for one of these infants? I know we've said it can vary from a few days to maybe three weeks, but do you have kind so of? I believe. I believe for our within Envision, it's 18 days. And I think if you look at like national standard, something around 17 days. Mm -hmm. Um, And so that's that's the hospital stay. Um, I believe pharmacologic uh, therapy for our institution, for our for our um, our company is, is I think, 15 days. And we're trying to decrease the length of pharmacologic um, treatment of these babies Mm -hmm. by by five percent. Mm-hmm. Um, over the next quarter. So we'll have um, data and hopefully we'll be able to see see those results improve by by encouraging everyone to to implement their own um, their own policies and practices. Well, usually you get results on what you focus on. So hopefully you can make a difference there by getting exactly. everybody on the same page. So exactly. I'm wondering now that we're talking a little bit about the length of stay, kind of what happens with these infants when they go home? Are they followed or 
Uh, are the neo neonatologists still involved? Is there a link between you and the pediatricians? Or kind of that whole ball of wax. Mm -hmm. Also, too, what's the long-term effects? Do we know? Mm -hmm. So, yeah. So, follow-up for these babies is is critical. Um, not only because they've been exposed to medications, which could alter their development, but these babies often, as as we've talked about, are 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 unfortunately some of them are are involved in in complex social situations and parents who sometimes don't have um, the means to um, provide, you know, adequate follow-up for these babies. So it is important for us to get involved early. We, we, we make sure that we get our social worker involved with these babies. Um, and then we make sure that we refer them upon discharge because we know they're at risk for developmental issues. We make sure we refer them upon discharge to an early intervention program where they are followed very closely to make sure that if they're showing any developmental um, delays, that those delays are are um, evaluated and approached very early in order to optimize the baby's ultimate um, development. I'm wondering too, um, just hearing kind of now that we're kind of in the post-discharge part of the talk, what what percent of these babies or do you have a feel for, do they also have multiple problems or are they just having just the withdrawal issue? Like I'm, you know, I'm suspecting that a lot of them have many problems. You know, it's hard to know right now, Tanya, because, you know, I just don't think we have enough longitudinal studies yet looking at the ultimate development. I'm sure that those studies are going to be forthcoming in the coming in the years mm -hmm. to come. You know, I think most of us feel relatively optimistic about these kids that if we identify them soon enough and if we treat them appropriately, that, that their outcomes won't be altered. But again, this is complex because you have environmental factors that, that you know, our ultimate <laughs> development and um, our ultimate um, success in, in in our in our environment is so multifactorial, right. and it's it's based on social things, it's based on cultural Absolutely. things, it's based on environmental things, and so um, it's very difficult to know. But likely, these babies unfortunately have a lot of of challenging environmental, cultural, and social things that, that can affect their development in a negative way. Yeah, I hear you. Well, that brings us to the issue of prevention. So hopefully we wouldn't get here, but I know it starts in pregnancy also. Yeah. So uh, yes. what measures can be taken to prevent? We talked about education and early, uh, early mm -hmm. idea of these moms in utero and communicating mm -hmm. so that as a neonatologist, you're, you're, led up front and not surprised at delivery. Um, yeah. Yeah. So this is, you know, this starts like, like you said, it starts now before people get pregnant, mm -hmm. perhaps when mm -hmm. they're, when they're even planning to get pregnant. Um, if they know that they're, um, that they have uh, a physical uh, a dependency, then they may start working with their medical providers to try to get off of these substances before they get pregnant. So it really starts with education of our of our medical providers as well as um, for for the public in general to know that this is a problem and that yes, you are you are taking these medications and they may be necessary and they may be um, prescribed, but please understand that you're exposing your fetus and so your fetus. Is going to be at risk. Um, so it, yes, education early on to to the public as well as to obstetricians, so that obstetricians understand um, that there are ways to um, alter our prescri prescription practices if if possible. 
Um, but it, it's so it's so complex, Tanya. <laughs> I know. Yeah, it's been kind of a sobering conversation. I know on my side and the maternal fetal medicine side, um, we did yeah. a we just did a study a couple of years ago, and at the time that we got a referral on the MFM side, um, we had at one time almost forty percent of our pregnant moms came to us for. Um, depression medication. So by, for the yeah. first time they would see their MFM doctor, they had already been on antidepressants. Wow. They had carried it into their pregnancy and they were referred at some point in their mm-hmm. pregnancy for that. So that was just like a shockingly high number, but it kind of speaks to medication use in the United States. And a sobering thing to tell you the truth, Dr. Prado, I hadn't even thought of until you brought it up was yeah. the whole issue of marijuana use and right. spread throughout our states in the last even just 18 months. Yes. And so we now have, you know, uh, legalization in many, many states, Colorado among them. And um, yeah. I mean, I'm just wondering about has the education program in some of those states kept up? Because you tend to think of, you know, legalization, really, you don't naturally think of, oh, what about our pregnant moms first? You think right. you, you don't think of that first. And so now we have users that are now, you know, getting pregnant again. And we, that was something we didn't have to deal with as much. Right. Maybe before it's it's gained a lot of notoriety in the last year and a half or a couple of years anyway. Yeah. You know, it's getting better. I think that it's it's gaining more recognition that we mm-hmm. need to get the word out mm-hmm. to women, especially who are of childbearing age. Um, it's it's interesting that you bring that up. There is a there's a public service announcement that I've seen somewhere here in Colorado of a baby with a cigarette in its mouth. Or mm. a joint. Uh, sorry, mm. a joint in mm. a smell. Mm. It's like you know, why would you, why would you use marijuana when you're pregnant? Is basically what I think it says above the baby. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's you know because I I think once you hear something's legal, you maybe don't understand that that okay, well it's legal for recreational use in your state. It's still a federal offense, is my understanding, mm-hmm. and it's not legal to use that medication when you're pregnant because we don't know how it affects the baby, mm-hmm. but we we're pretty sure that it's it's not a good thing for a developing brain mm-hmm. to expose it to marijuana. And that's what I and had the, heard was that yeah. even up into your teenage years, that there can be some effect on the developing brain. Oh, yeah. mm-hmm. Absolutely. So obviously it stands to reason that it, that it would affect the fetus. Yeah. It's, it, I can see where someone would mistakenly think, no problem. And you know what? See, right. Here in Georgia, we sit in one of the states where we have a huge teen pregnancy um, problem here. And so... We have moms that are, you know, not that well educated and have have multiple things to deal with. But I mean, you know, really, so, uh, you know, looking at what they think is appropriate or, you know, normal is is another whole another can of worms. Putting some information like this out there is makes it. Yeah, I'm tweeting about this as soon as we're done today. I'm tweeting about this now that it's been brought to my attention. The other thing is the marijuana nowadays is so much more potent than Mm -hmm. it was like in the 1970s. It's Mm -hmm. all, you know, it's all been engineered and it's much more potent. And Mm -hmm. we're learning that that these chemicals, and there's not just, you know, there's so many chemicals in marijuana that, um, that are toxic. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. So I hope that this helps yeah. kind of get the word, get the word out. out. Yeah. Hopefully that's, that's the whole point of your talk today. The well, other thing is, Tanya, there is a known withdrawal syndrome from, from SSRIs and SNRIs, which are commonly used antidepressants. Mm-hmm. So, you know, mothers who are taking prescription pain medications, as well as prescription, um, uh, antidepressants, those babies are going to be likely at even higher risk of of having uh, withdrawal sy- syndrome and symptoms. Mm-hmm. 
Oh, scary stuff. Well, a yeah. topic we wish we didn't have to talk about today, but yeah. we're almost to the end of the show. I wanted to ask you if we've covered really what you wanted to cover or if there's any lasting tips or tidbits you wanted to leave us with. You know, just to encourage us as healthcare providers to make sure that we, um, you know, stay on top of the literature and um, and make sure that we provide empathy and support to people who, you know, it, it may seem easy to us just to say, mm-hmm. you know, get off of this. And it's not that easy. But so we have to uh, work with the mother's healthcare provider to make sure that she's being treated safely and to let her know that that we can treat her baby and, mm-hmm. and treat her baby successfully if yeah. needed. Certainly part of the message I think we're both clear on is, you know, don't sacrifice your your prenatal care um, for what you right. think for what you think might be a punitive thing if you show up. I think that's exactly. one of the big parts of the message. Well exactly. listen, we're to the end of the show, CW and Dr. Prado, thank you so much for being here with a our show today and um, talking about this topic that probably nobody wants to talk about, but is becoming more and more prevalent as time goes on. So we appreciate you being with us. Thank you. If you want more information about Envision Healthcare, you can go to SheridanHealthcare.com and make sure you get familiar with Women's Telehealth. That's Women'sTelehealth.com. And if you have not done so already, get over to the iTunes store, follow the Apple logo on the show page. That'll take you over there. You can subscribe to us. And that way each week is the show is downloaded straight to your device, ready for you to check out when it's convenient for you. And we hope you turn around and share this one in particular. We always ask our folks to share it, but but getting this information in the hands when we're dealing with some folks out there dealing with uh, the use and even abuse of prescription medications, and I, I would assume sometimes mistakenly thinking, well, this must mean mm-hmm. they wouldn't prescribe it if it was not good for my, mm-hmm. my unborn baby, mm-hmm. to become more familiar with some of these notions so that they can maybe avoid that kind of problem altogether for their, for their children. It's a, kind of a scary thought. Yeah. All right. Well, hopefully we've done some good on education today. Thanks so All right, much Dr. for Prada, being thank with you. us. Have a good afternoon, thank everybody. Thank you.